Good morning, beloved. Uh, good to be gathered together, gathered together, uh, to worship the Lord together uh, and to hear his word. Uh, join me in prayer, if you will. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bless now the hearing of your word. Give us understanding of your word. Help us to seek it and with it to get wisdom. And in that wisdom, Lord, help us to live for you uh, and to be faithful in every area of our lives. Uh, speak to us, O oh Lord, for uh, our day from this ancient text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us this morning, you are parachuting into a sermon series that we began about five weeks ago that we've called Bless the Block. Uh, we call it that because part of our mission as a church uh, is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, on the four corners of the block. Uh, and that process of making disciples isn't limited to just the preaching of the gospel and getting people to make decisions. We want them to not just make decisions, but to become disciples, to enter into the, the way of life that Jesus prescribes for us in his word. It's interesting, you, you will know this if you know the book of Acts, that the earliest Christians, before they were called Christians, were actually called followers of the way. And so we, we really want to be a, a little community of followers of the way, the way of life that's consistent with Jesus' life and with the kingdom. Uh, and that, that is a, a way of life that's blessed. Uh, and so this series is about how we bring material and spiritual blessings to the block as an exile community uh, living inside of our neighborhood with a particular concern for our section of the city. So we are continuing in this uh, series. It's a study of Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 4 to 9. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at verse 7 in particular. I'll read the whole text for us, but we'll, we'll settle into verse 7. So look with me in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So you may remember, just for a little bit of context, Israel has been sent into captivity in Babylon, conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is a letter being written to those exiles who have been carried away into captivity. They are to be there for 70 years, uh, and then uh, God is going to return them to their own homeland in Jerusalem. And God gives them commands uh, for how they are to live as exiles in the world, exiles in Babylon. The first command is build houses and live in them. They are to plant gardens and eat from them. So they are to take control of their housing needs and their food needs by being producers of those things. Then they're told to marry and have children and give their children in marriage, and they will also have children. They're to multiply and increase, so um, they're actually to flourish in their family lives um, as an exile people. Which brings us to our verse, verse 7. And in this verse, we got two commands and one rationale. 
And that's really going to be our outline. We're going to look at each of the commands. Command number one is seek the welfare of the city. Command number two, and point number two, is and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And then the rationale, point number three, is for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And again, this is an instruction to us as an exile community about our mission here on the block in Anacostia. Let's take that first command. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Verse 7 in some ways kind of uh, alludes back to verse 4. That last phrase there, where I have sent you into exile, is a reminder of two things. That God is in control and God has sent them to this land of exile. They are not there by chance, they are there by providence. And they are there, yes, because of their sin, because for 23 years they refused to listen to God, but they are also there because of God's compassion. God has sent them into exile so that they would learn to listen to Him. And He has sent them into exile uh, as the very place of their blessing and of their flourishing, despite their sins. So it's a revelation of the graciousness and the goodness and the generosity of God. But consider the command, the main action of the command, seek. You see there, seek the welfare of the city. Seek means to actively look for something, to really kind of dig for something. It's not a casual looking around. It's, it's, it's really actually searching and working for. That same idea is in the Lord Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 verse 4, he talks about a man. He said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Or Luke 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So there's this diligent, earnest, eager seeking, going after something that's implied or that's taught in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. The Jewish exiles were to commit themselves to this kind of digging for the welfare of the city. John Calvin puts it this way. He says the Jews were to do what they could to exert themselves to the utmost so that no harm might happen to the Chaldean monarchy. Now, that verb, seek, is a general verb. All the other commands up until this point have been pretty specific. Build houses, right? There's only one way to build a house. Plant gardens. There's only one way to plant a garden marry and have children. Those have been pretty particular commands. Now this idea of seek opens up this kind of broad command because there are many ways to seek, uh, many things to do in seeking the welfare of the city. And so, so we, are, we are meant to understand then that there are going to be a lot of strategies, some individual and some corporate, with a lot of diversity that goes into seeking the welfare of the city. Now, what's meant here in this text by the welfare of the city? Well, that, that word welfare is, a, is an English translation of a popular Hebrew term, shalom. Uh, shalom is actually a rich word. You can translate it with a lot of words, but most of them fail to capture the richness. You, richness. you can transfer, uh, translate it as welfare. You can translate it as tranquility. You can translate it as harmony. Or most often translate it as peace. For, for ancient Jews and, and Jews today, many Jews, shalom is a, is a word of greeting. I mean, it's like the brothers, you see each other, like, yo, peace, what's up? That's, that's shalom. Shalom is peace. It's wishing peace to others, prosperity to others, flourishing to others. 
I, I like the way the pastor and theologian Cornelius Plantinga sums up um, Shalom when he writes, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior uh, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's what the exiles are to seek. In seeking the welfare of the city, they're to seek the shalom of the city. They're to seek to sort of produce, um, to put things in, in sort of the way they ought to be. Right? And so we're to seek the welfare of the city. And notice, they must seek the welfare of the entire city, not just the exile community. As God's people, they are not selfishly preoccupied only with their well-being. As God's representatives, they are to be selflessly and sacrificially concerned with the well-being of their neighbors, too, even neighbors who may hate their God and, and, and not practice their religion. Right? So, so this idea of seeking the welfare of the city is expansive to include the entire city. So while we want to see the flourishing of our local church, we also want to see the flourishing of our entire community. We want God's blessing on his people, yes, but we want God's blessing on people who don't yet know him as well. And so we want to seek the shalom of the whole city, and we want to seek the shalom of the whole person. Shalom requires a, 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 a universal peace, a thoroughgoing flourishing. We want to see a universal wholeness and, and delight. So what this means is we have to address uh, people's relationship with God, people's relationships with other people, and people's relationships with themselves. We're after a peace with God, a peace with others, and a peace within. Now this means we need to have both a, a singular focus in one sense and a general focus in another sense. By singular focus, I, I mean we need to keep our eyes uh, and our attention focused on the Prince of Peace and the message of peace, the gospel. We, we need to be sure we are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are going along the way doing all these other things that we do because it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that the sinner ever acquires peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 puts it nicely, says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Jesus, he himself, has become our peace. There's no peace with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. When he dies on the cross for our sins, he's making atonement for the sins that have separated us from God. And when he is raised from the grave, he is accomplishing our reconciliation, our justification, our being brought back to God in right standing with God and thus making peace between us and God. 
And so there, there can be no peace between sinners and God without Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. And this morning, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we want you to know that um, if you're not a Christian, that actually the Bible says you are expressing hostility toward God. You're at war with God. And you need that warfare to end. You need peace with God. You can't beat God. You need to join God. And so we would encourage you to confess your sins to God and confess that Jesus is the Son of God who was crucified to pay the penalty for your sins and raised from the grave for your justification and for your peace with God. Put your faith in Jesus and follow him from faith. You see it on t-shirts sometimes and it's true. No Jesus, N-O Jesus. No peace, N-O peace. No Jesus, K-N-O-W Jesus. No peace, K-N-O-W, peace. This is what the gospel teaches us. But then we have to also apply this same gospel, not just in the act of evangelism and, and seeking after conversion, but we've got to apply this gospel throughout our lives as disciples and in our service to the community. That's what I mean by a general focus. We want peace with God to also produce peace with neighbor. Applying the gospel to every area of human life means we have to consider things like conflict resolution, restorative justice, violence prevention, and so on. The, the welfare of the city must include things like the elimination of domestic abuse and child abuse. It means stronger relationships between uh, the community and police departments and other forms of authority. It means crime prevention but also a refusal to criminalize things that should never have been criminalized in the first place, like mental health challenges. Shalom means then making an investment in every area of human endeavor and human life, from physical health to mental health to education and employment um, and everything in between. So we want to be people of peace, producing peace. And, and we want to do this in a way that encourages as we've said many times in this series, human flourishing. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, part of what we mean by that is we want to do this in a way that encourages the development and the use, uh, as Plantinga put it, of natural gifts and abilities. That, that all of us as human beings made in God's image are actually people of incredible capacity, an incredible resource. And that needs to flourish. And so we, we need to do this in a way that helps people do what they are capable of doing individually, uh, for their families, and for their communities. And so shalom is not dependence. It's the opposite of dependence. It's flourishing. In the words of Hamilton, it means we don't want to throw away our shot. We want to see everyone not throw away their shot, but actually flourish and multiply in the capacities that God has given them. So this is what we're commanded to do, to seek the welfare of the city. It's a huge set of issues. Shalom is broad. And so this PSA team is really, in one sense, going to have the, the biggest sort of scope of things to consider. And this will be the team that will need the most discernment about how we use our resources to pursue shalom for the city and the welfare of the city. And we can begin that work by asking ourselves some basic questions as, as disciples ourselves. So, for example, number one, what are we doing right now as individual Christians to seek the welfare of the city, and particularly 
our neighborhood in Southeast? Or number two, have we considered that seeking the welfare of this place, the place of our exile, is in fact an exile's God-given responsibility? It's a calling that he places on all of his people. Or, number three, we should ask ourselves if we have in some way been justifying, mainly or solely, focusing on ourselves and our church, rather than the broader community. We need to check that if that's in our heart. Or a fourth question. We should be we sort of taking inventory of our own gifts and abilities. Do we have gifts, abilities, expertise, interests um, that could contribute to the city's, the city's flourishing, the neighborhood's flourishing? How can we take what God has already given us and use it in a way that strengthens and blesses the block? Well, that's the first part of the command in verse 7. We are to seek the welfare of of the city. Here's the second command here. We are to pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. Pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. So if verse 7 takes the Jewish exiles and turns their attention to the city, the first command does that, then the second command in verse city in verse 7 takes the exiles' attention and turns it up to God. That we are to now turn to God uh, in prayer. So the first command is, 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 in one sense, the exiles taking God's goodness into the neighborhood. And then the second command is the exile taking the needs of the neighborhood up to God in intercession and in prayer. And so you can see here, in a real sense, that to be a Christian and a part of the Christian exile community, the church, or to be a part of ancient Israel, is in some sense to have a priestly function where we stand between uh, the community and God, representing God to the community, representing the community to God. We are intercessors. We are a kingdom of priests in that way. Now, if seek the welfare of the city brings to mind physical and material effort, then pray to the Lord brings to mind spiritual and internal effort. And we need both. We need material action, and spiritual asking. In fact, we need to do the material action in the power of the spiritual asking, in the power of prayer. And once we have prayed, once we have asked, we need to then rise up and act. And there's a real sense, beloved, in which the most strenuous work we will do to bless the block is the work of prayer. And pray, prayer is work. Prayer is action. Um, there's, there's online at least, sometimes you can see, say, after a tragedy, um, some folks will say something like that, you know, thoughts and prayers are with you. And there are a lot of people who are now responding to that negatively. We need your thoughts and prayers. We need action. Well, I think they have forgotten or maybe never knew that prayer is action. I, I love the way Karen Ellis, our sister, tweeted about this um, this past week. She says, prayer is action. Prayer precedes action, prayer directs action, prayer undergirds action, prayer refines action, prayer empowers action, prayer is action. Amen. When we're called to prayer, we are in fact called to action, the most fundamental and important action that gives rise and power to all other actions. And to pray like this requires faith. Well, we've said a number of times in this sermon series that the exile community needs to live by faith because the kind of shalom that we're talking about here does not come through human ingenuity and human wisdom. 
this kind of peace can only come from God, and so um, this kind of prayer is essential to us seeing peace in our city. The exiles must pray to the Lord on the city's behalf because only the Lord can give an entire city shalom. Now, there's another challenge that relates to this command. Remember now, Israel has been conquered by Babylon. They've been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they are drug away into their enemy's territory. And so you can maybe feel or sense the, the weight of this call to seek the city's welfare and to pray to the Lord on its behalf um, when you're sort of thinking, wait a minute, these are the same cats who have conquered us and taken us captive. It's, it's not a natural instinct to pray for our captors and our enemies, is it? And it is interesting that commentators say that this is actually the only verse in the Old Testament where Israel is commanded to pray for any of its enemies. That's striking. But now, when we come to the New Testament, praying for our enemies becomes an actual Christian ethic, doesn't it? It's not a rare instance, one verse out of the whole Old Testament. It is part of the flavor and the, and the tapestry of New Testament Christianity. Right? So we think about Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, where the Lord Jesus says there, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, it's a high calling to be in exile. We are to love our city and to pray for our city, though it's the place of our exile. Now, I think what this implies is that if we resent being where God has sent us into exile, we will not either see the blessing God has for us in the place of our exile or be the blessing God means for us to be to the place of our exile. And this is why, you know, an attitude that says something like, I can't stand this place, i got to get away from here, might not be the best attitude for an exile or a Christian disciple living in Christian community on mission for God. I mean, don't get me wrong, some people will need to get out. That, that will be wisdom. Leaving the neighborhood for some reason uh, would be good and right. But some of us, are, you'll recall from our first sermon, are called to relocate to the neighborhood, to remain in the neighborhood, or to return to the neighborhood. And if God is calling us and wooing us to do that, to relocate, to remain, or to return, then guess where our place of blessing is? Is in the place of exile. And, and, and therefore, we should not allow our hearts to resent the place where God has sent us, any place where God has sent us. That resentment will be the ruin of our calling and our blessing. And so we, we, want, to, we want to love, learn to love where we are spending our exile. So let me ask you some questions. How regularly do you pray for the peace of the neighborhood and the city? Do, do we see this as a part of our calling as exiles, to pray for Anacostia, to pray for Southeast, to pray for Washington, D.C., or if you live in Alexandria or PG County somewhere, to pray for the places where uh, we live? 
Or have we been resenting our exile? Have we actually been wasting spiritual energy wanting to be someplace else other than where God has actually sent us? Better to use that energy positively in interceding to God, asking God to, to bless the place where he sent us and to bless us here. Or number three, are we, are we tempted to be impatient with prayer? Maybe even slipping over into some sense that prayer is not action. Do we need to repent of that? With our PSA teams, the, the first letter in those teams, it's not SAP teams, it's not ASP teams, it's a PSA team. The first letter is prayer. And, and so I want to encourage us to think about, as we get involved in these teams, to think about these teams as organized prayer meetings, to think about these teams as an organized prayer movement, and to think about these teams as an opportunity for us to grow in prayer in praying faithfully for, uh, to our God, for our city, for our community, for our church. So one of the reasons to be excited about a PSA team and to join one is not just the subject matter, but the spiritual growth that we are praying happens in those teams, growth in things like prayer. And we want this at the heart of what we do. We want this to sort of mark us out as different from other movements to improve uh, life in the city. This movement, this community, these exiles are marked by prayer because we are called to pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. And may we pray in the spirit, pray in faith, pray fervently for all that God has for our neighborhood. Which brings us to a third point. I want to consider now the reason for all this. Why God instructs them to seek the welfare of the city and to pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. Why, why would he take a captive community, a community of exiles, and, and say to them, you are to seek the blessing of those who conquered you? Well, verse 7 is, ends with an important clause. You see it there at the end? For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In it, the city's welfare, you will find, you the exiles, will find your welfare. This clause establishes a kind of mutuality between the Jewish exiles and their Babylonian captors. From God's perspective, the lives of the Jewish exile community, it is to rise and fall with the life of the Babylonian city. As things go for the city, so they go for the exiles. This is extraordinary because what God is doing is taking his covenant people and tying up their well-being with the, the well-being of his non-covenant people, of, of people who do not know him and do not worship him. But there's a mutuality there. And, and the best exile leaders understands this, understand this. It, it reminds me of Dr. King's, one of Dr. King's comments is describing the relationship between African Americans seeking civil rights at the time and, and the country as a whole. And he says this, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. It's a, it's a wonderful sort of um, companion quote to what we're reading in verse 7. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, I think this requires a, a mind shift for many Christians and many Christian churches who, who want to be a blessing to their neighborhoods. 
And the mind shift is this. We, we've got to actually recognize that we are not the saviors of the neighborhood. That the neighborhood is not dependent upon us. In fact, this text says we are dependent upon the neighborhood. That our flourishing depends upon the flourishing of the wider community. And, and so that requires a mind shift. Jonathan Brooks, pastor in Chicago, you've heard me quote him a number of times in his book, Church Forsaken, talks about this uh, mind shift that was happening uh, with his church there in Chicago. He writes this, To hear congregants speak as if they only have assets and no deficits feels patronizing to those who have been neglected. It comes across as condescending to act as if we only come to serve and have nothing to receive from the community. I think that's right. If we're in the, in the neighborhood with an attitude that, that we're just here to serve, we don't need anything from anybody, that pride just sort of reeks, man. It just rolls off of us, and it's, and it's repulsive to people who can sense it and smell it and see it. So, so mutuality means, again, we're not the saviors of the community. Only Jesus is the savior. We need the community as much or more as the community needs the church. Our flourishing depends upon the flourishing of our city, not the other way around, according to this text. So Israel was not an island independent of outside influences. They existed in a concrete context. And that context impacted them for good or for ill. And that was by God's design. So Israel was to share in the fortunes and the failures of their city. And so it is with the church. We find our welfare in the welfare of our cities and neighborhoods. As it goes with the city, so it goes with the church. That means like Israel, we must overcome an us-them mentality in order to embrace a sense of mutuality. So to quote Jonathan Brooks again, so a slightly longer quote, but it's a good illustration of the kind of mind shift that happened for them. He writes this, We, his church, have completely removed the word outreach from our vocabulary and replaced it with the language of community. We recognize that we are both providers and recipients of love as members of our community. Removing the language of outreach has led to a better understanding of true community. We now know community begins with seeing every person as someone with capacity and realizing we all have things to provide and things we need to receive. He goes on to say, rather than saying we wanted to serve our community, we began to say we wanted to serve with our community. Instead of loving our neighbors, we wanted to love with our neighbors. Instead of advocating for the oppressed, we wanted to advocate with the oppressed. Just a simple language change was beginning to change our practices as well. That's the kind of shift we need to make. Because the truth is, we're not the only people who care about the community. We're not the only people who want to work for the well-being of the community. We're certainly not the first people in the community to work for it. So our PSA teams need to have an eye toward mutuality, which should drive us toward partnership with other organizations and other groups that are doing good work in the community for the flourishing of the community. And, and we've got to sort of begin to have a conversation that sifts our hearts on this point. Uh, we need to ask ourselves, do we have a sense that our welfare is tied up together with the welfare of our neighborhood? Or are we kind of acting like a lone ranger, Christian, or church? Do we tend to see ourselves as the people with something to provide while never seeing ourselves as people who are in need? Is that true of us? 
Are we even unintentionally setting up an us-them perspective that, that others the community and, and exalts ourselves? Do we have language that reveals that kind of othering? Do we have practices that reveal that kind of othering? What things do we need to change in both language and practice that demonstrates that we are part of the community, that we are mutually tied together with the community, and that our success depends in some measure on the well-being of the community itself? In the city's welfare, we will find our welfare. Now, I want to end this sermon by sort of thinking about four other things that this phrase implies. In its welfare, you'll find your welfare. These are four other things I want to speak into because I think these are, are, are currents in the culture that are affecting the way Christians think. And I, it should not be true of us as a church. So insofar as I have pastoral responsibility to shape you by God's word into the maturity of Christ, I want to speak to some things that, that might, you might be hearing, you might be engaging, uh, that might be affecting the way you think about things. Now, this phrase, in its welfare, you will find your welfare, rules out four ways of thinking rules out four ideas that seem to be pretty current right now in the church world. Number one, mutuality rules out anarchy. Rules out anarchy. To obey this verse, Israel cannot be a source of confusion and disorder. They can't seek the overthrow of the Babylonian government. If they're going to submit to God, they must submit to the leaders that God establishes, including pagan leaders like Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this applies very clearly to the Christian church as well. Romans 13 makes it clear that God ordains every government, and to refuse the authorities that God has established is, in fact, to refuse God, to disobey God. Now, while this rules out anarchy, I want to be careful here, because some people take Romans 13 and they go too far. They, they want to suggest from Romans 13 that we must submit to government even when government does injustice or abuses its power. That's not true. That's false. Consider how Daniel, in Babylon, refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar, even though that was a law in Babylon. Or think of the Egyptian midwives, Shipra and Pua, how they refused to obey Pharaoh's order to abort uh, Israelite children. They, they were right not to comply with the government. Or, in the New Testament, remember how Paul used his civil rights as a Roman citizen to protect himself against the abuse of Roman soldiers. All of that, all of these examples, teach us that protest and civil disobedience have their place in the Bible. Right? So, we want to avoid a couple of polls here. Submission to government never means, on the one hand, uh, that we go along with injustice and evil that the government does. Never. But at the same time, sort of the mutuality that's spoken of in this text, it, well, that means that we have a shared destiny with the city, and, and we don't give ourselves to lawlessness and anarchy and rebellion against the authorities that God has established. Right? So number one, mutuality rules out anarchy. Number two, mutuality rules out separatism. The exile community cannot isolate itself from the rest of the city and its inhabitants. Neither ancient Israel nor the Christian church has grounds for withdrawing completely from the culture, withdrawing completely from the world. We are not Amish. 
We're not people going off into some cult compound in the rural woods of Georgia or Texas somewhere. No, we are not separatists who care only for ourselves. Remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. We are to do good to all, which means we are to engage all, and we are not then separatists as Christians. But there's a third thing. This mutuality rules out nationalism. It rules out nationalism. Nationalism might be defined as identification with one's own ethnic group or one's own uh, nation and support for that ethnic group and its nation's interests, especially to the exclusion and the detriment of the interests and the needs of other ethnic groups and other nations. Nationalism is summed up in slogans like America First where that's not a slogan, uh, is not used as a slogan for patriotism, but where it might be used uh, really to reveal a kind of bigotry and an ethnocentrism. When I was pastoring the Cayman Islands around election times, you sometimes hear people say, Cayman for Caymanians. That's nationalism, particularly in an island nation uh, with, at that time, about 115 different nationalities in the country. That's a kind of nationalism. And we're living in a day of increased nationalism around the world. And a lot of it is fueled by xenophobia, by racism, by bigotry, by hatred, by selfishness. But Israel was a minority ethnic and religious group living in a totally foreign culture. And God expected them to care about that culture and to care about that people. So nationalism, whether ethnic nationalism or Christian nationalism or any other sort, does not fit with the missionary character of God's elect exiles. It doesn't fit with our way of life as Christians. And you can see this in New Testament texts like Philippians 2 verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or Romans chapter 15 verses 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor, please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So we have to reject ethnic and political uh, nationalism because it's contrary to the way Jesus identified with sinners and suffered in their reproach. We must reject ethnic and political and religious nationalism because it denies the mutuality to which we are called. It cuts against neighbor love, which is one of our greatest commandments. Number four, mutuality rules out vengeance and bitterness, doesn't it? Romans 12, 19 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's God speaking. Proverbs 24, 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. For the people of God, um, vengeance and bitterness is never a holy heart posture. It's a sinful heart posture. We want a sanctified heart posture, a holy heart posture. And in that posture, we will seek the welfare of the city. Because in the welfare of the city, we will find our welfare. So let me conclude by asking, do we have faith enough to pray for and seek the shalom of the entire city and of our neighborhood? That's our calling. And we have a gospel and a God that's big enough to provide it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for your word, and for the privilege of being able to hear your word, and for what you've instructed us to do in your word. 
And we pray that you would give us grace, wisdom, understanding, zeal, obedience, and hope so that we might seek, O oh Lord, the welfare of our city and we might be faithful to pray to you on its behalf and we might be humble enough to recognize that in its welfare, Lord, is our welfare. Send forth your peace, we pray. Send forth your shalom in Jesus' name.